Mark chapter 4. And I'll I'll remind you that uh, initially I dealt with the parable of the sower over the course of a couple weeks. Now we're getting to um, what Jesus is doing with these parables uh, before we get into some of the other parables. It's sort of an interesting uh, text to sort of try and process and break up. So uh, if it feels a little disjointed, the chapter is (laughs) in that sense. It's all okay. Really, it is. Uh, so I'm going to read different parts of this, uh, starting in verse, actually verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, and down to verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then down to verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, Son, and Spirit, help us to receive these words as the word of God, uh, just as the Thessalonians did, uh, for they are ultimately from you. Be at work in us by your word, both living and written, uh, that we may be justified, sanctified, and glorified according to your good, holy, and wise counsel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Your Son, our Savior, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Going to seminary is an interesting experience if you haven't done it. Uh, One of the interesting parts of it is that you, uh, like, well, I did anyway, I moved across the country. And now I had to find a church uh, that was outside uh, of anything I had really been to before. Um, And one of the churches I went to was a southern church. Baptist Church. Now, Northern Yankee meets Southern Baptist. Okay, but I had chosen this church because I'd met the pastor on campus, and he he was relatively new to the area himself, and uh, he told us that he was a Calvinist, you know, and so he was looking to mentor some of the Baptist students that were um, going to RTS at that point in time. And so I went and, you know, I went to try to check out this church, and one of the things I did was I went to a um, college and career Bible study uh, that was going on. And uh, so there I was, sitting, listening, and one of the young guys was really excited because he had just read that day Isaiah 55. And he was the only Christian in his family, just like I was, 
and, and he was excited because it talks about how God's word does not return void or empty. And so he was convinced uh, that the sharing of the gospel to his family members was going to end up in their conversion. He was just convinced based on Isaiah 55. And me, being the cynical individual that I happened to be, um, who was in a similar situation as him, said, well, maybe. And so began the descent into the discussion of predestination that I did not want to have. My intention was not to stir up trouble in that Bible study. My intention was merely to put the brakes or the cautions on this young man so that he wasn't disappointed like I was that my attempts at evangelizing my family had thus far and still have resulted in nothing. Well, Eventually, I told them, your pastor believes this too. Go talk to him because, you know, I I don't want to. It's not my place to disrupt this congregation. I didn't want to mess it all up. But this kind of leads us into a question. As we look at Matthew 4 and Jesus' use of parables there, why does Jesus use parables? And uh, we see that he uses them in verses 1 and 2 and Uh, later on as well, in 33 and 34. But the why, I think, is found in verses 11 and 12. Why does Jesus use parables? Now, there are some people, before I kind of get into the text, who think that we should all use parables because Jesus used parables, and uh, that their understanding of why Jesus uses parables uh, is quite mistaken and quite contrary to the text. He thinks that they, Jesus used parables primarily because they were easily understood. <laughs> All right, we see a shift in how Jesus was teaching the large groups that had begun to gather or resumed gathering uh, around him. Uh, you know, we see that there's different periods in his ministry, and we see now this new phase of his ministry, and Jesus begins to use parables. Parables. What are parables? I've mentioned before that parables are not um, simply used in that very narrow sense of, say, the parable of the sower. Uh, They're figures of speech uh, that were used generally in instruction. Uh, It could be uh, parables are used um, for proverbs as well. Proverbs are a form of parable. And so we see this interesting thing at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1. Let the wise hear and increase in learning... And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Makes it sound like perhaps they're not the most easily understood things in the world, these parables that are called proverbs. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Parables can be metaphors. Or, as in the case of the parable of the sower, a a metaphor told in the form of a story. Uh, that is in some ways easy to understand and perhaps others not. But Mark reports uh, here in chapter 4 a series of illustrative stories that are based on common known realities. And the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel is chapter 13. 
Okay, we see this, a lot of the same parables that emerge within this, the same context. Okay? Jesus explains to us uh, that these are, are about the secret of the kingdom. And here's one of the places where I'm going to be frustrated with the translators of this uh, secret. In Greek, it's mysterion, which sounds remarkably, remarkably like mystery. Why don't they don't just translate it mystery? I'm not sure. But mystery is the term I would use. Just transliterate it. But it has that idea of something that once was obscured, once was hidden, and now has been made known. That's the biblical understanding of a mystery, and we'll get back into what these mysteries are in a bit. Jesus explains that these secrets of the kingdom are being revealed in parables for a particular reason, and he explains why by quoting from Isaiah 6. And when he introduces this particular passage from Isaiah 6, he begins with the phrase, so that, or in order that, meaning that there's a purpose that he's about to reveal that have to do with his use of these parables regarding the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew uses a different word, because. It's slightly different in the Greek, and that's okay. Uh, He's indicating more, he's sort of softening this, uh, that what follows is, uh, uh, the result is what follows. Now all of a sudden my brain is cloudy. Um, Jesus is not creating a situation, but it is the result of the previous situation that takes place in Matthew 12. Okay, is that clear enough? That's how Matthew is kind of handling it. uh, Here in Mark, it's being handled as though um, Jesus is initiating something, although it also is uh, in response to the very same set of circumstances um, that we find in Matthew 12, repeated in Mark chapter 3. We'll get to this in a moment, and hopefully it will be more clear than I just made it. I obscured the truth. I think, I fear, I did not intend to do that. But he speaks these things, these mysteries, in parables so that, or in order that, they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand. And there's, there's a little bit of um, translating that I would do differently. It's, it's an interesting way in which, he does, uh, which Jesus, or actually Isaiah, does this. That though they see, the ones seeing, seeing, do not perceive. The ones hearing, hear, but don't understand. And so there's this emphasis on on the senses that is at work in this passage from Isaiah, but the usefulness, the futility of the senses. That even though they do hear, even though they do see, they don't understand what's really going on. These parables are using words that they understand, 
Okay? So it's not that they, they have vocabulary that is not clear. It's not vocabulary that's somehow beyond them. It's not uh, that Jesus is speaking philosophically and above their heads. That's not the issue of what's going on here. They don't know what these words mean with regard to how the kingdom functions. There, there's a disconnect in their understanding in going from, for instance, farming to evangelism. That's the disconnect. They can't seem to make that bridge from the earthly topic to the spiritual topic. And so we should understand that parables are used by Jesus not necessarily to clarify meaning, but at times to obscure the mysteries of the kingdom, but not from everybody, but he says specifically to those outside. To those who are outside the kingdom. But also, if we think of Mark chapter 3, those who were outside the house where Jesus was teaching. Because they're outside, they're mocking, they're disinterested. It's outside that they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. And so, uh, there's a lot more that's going on than just they don't understand. Jesus is making it in some way sure or clear that they will not understand. He clarifies this. They don't perceive, they don't understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is obscuring these gospel mysteries from them so they don't receive what the gospel mysteries offer them. And in this sense, it is a judicial act. This is not Jesus playing hide-and-seek with the gospel. Uh, This is not Jesus um, keeping the gospel hidden from people who want to understand it. Precisely because this follows the charge of demon possession. And so we see other instances of judicial hardening taking place. Uh, We see it, for instance, in Exodus 7 and 8. Moses is warned that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we see, as we read through the the account in Exodus, uh, there are times when Pharaoh hardens his own heart by refusing to listen to what God says, and there are times when Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God. Because Pharaoh has already hardened his heart. And so it's furthering the judicial process. It's an act of judgment upon the unbelieving Pharaoh. We see a similar thing in Isaiah 6. Uh, We read it. And there's that initial joy that's that's like Sean in that Bible study so long ago in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Here's a guy, Isaiah, who's just received pardon from God. He's he's, He's in the throne room, which we can't quite understand. God says, whom shall we send? And he says, send me! Because he thinks it's going to be an awesome adventure and mission filled with success and glory. I mean, he's 
just excited because of what he, the grace he has received, and he wants to serve God, and he, so he responds, and then he gets the message as to what he's actually going to be doing. He maybe should have waited. Because it talks about how he's going to make those people's hearts dull. He's going to make it so that they do not understand, so that they do not perceive. These were people who were already living in rebellion against God as his people, okay? his covenant people, having turned away from him to worship false gods. God is preparing them for, here comes the Assyrians, and at the end of this passage, at the end of Isaiah 6, you, you read about how they get obliterated. And all that's left is a stump, the holy stump. Isaiah didn't have a great message for the people of his day. Um, you'll, if you read later on in Isaiah, there's a lot of great stuff in there, but that's for people yet to come. But he largely engaged in the ministry of hardening people who were already unbelieving the promises, toward the promises of God. We see something similar in Romans 11, which is in the days after Jesus, in the days of Paul. We see that Israel experienced what's called a partial hardening so that the Gentiles could come in. We see this in Romans 11, verse 7, and uh, verse 25. Part of the ministry of Paul, following the ministry of Jesus, was to preach a message uh, that hardened the hearts of unbelieving Israel so that the Gentiles... Could come in. We see that clearly in Acts 28 uh, when Paul is in Rome and he's preached to the Jews in Rome and they've said, you're nuts. And so he says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen because you don't. And so we have this very difficult to grasp, um, and, and some of that is existential because we don't want to believe it, but however, Jesus conceals gospel mysteries through parables. He says it right here. The reason he speaks in parables is not because everybody gets them, but because some people don't. So, Jesus conceals gospel mysteries through parables. Which brings us to a second question, and our second point. Is the use of parables only a negative? Eh, We'll look again at 10 and 11 and 33 and 34. We see that those who were outside weren't the only ones who didn't understand. Apparently, there were other disciples, and we see that those disciples asked Jesus, what? are you talking about? They're expressing the reality that they didn't quite fully understand either. Now, here's the difference. Uh, Those who were outside either thought they understood but didn't, 
Or they didn't understand and didn't think that understanding was all that important. But here we have disciples who don't understand, know they don't understand, but seek to understand, and they go directly to the source, that is, to Jesus. And so authentic disciples of Jesus want to understand, and they ask Jesus for help when they don't. Okay? In other words, don't be discouraged if you're reading the scriptures and you don't understand something. These are his disciples. These are the ones that are following him around 24-7. They don't understand everything that he says. And when they ask him, he does not chide them. But we see, particularly from verse 34, he explained these things to them. And so when you don't understand or you have doubts, okay, bring them to Jesus. It's safe to bring them to Jesus. And he'll help you understand. But it's the, precisely the person who doesn't understand and refuses to go to Jesus for help that remains in their ignorance and unbelief. So bring your lack of understanding to Jesus. Don't pretend you have it all together. He knows that you don't know. And it's okay. Jesus stuns them, I think. To you. Now, these, now hold on a second. Remember, these people just said, what do these things mean? Right? Yet Jesus says to them, to you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. They've got the secret. (laughs) They don't quite fully understand it, but something has been given to them. They are in possession of this. But let's keep in mind how Jesus expresses this. The, The mysteries are given. The mysteries are not discovered. That's an important distinction. Because if they're discovered, then you have control over it. And the reason you don't have them is you haven't worked hard enough. Okay? But thankfully, that's not the case. That's not what Jesus intends to imply. He's not saying you just have to work harder. They're given, they're a gift. They're of grace. If we have the mysteries of the kingdom, if we know the mysteries of the kingdom, it's not because we're smarter. It's not because we worked harder. It's because God was gracious and kind and merciful to us in giving us these mysteries of the kingdom. And so to understand grace is a grace even of itself. Because God does not owe rebels this knowledge. While we are to think, it is God alone who grants understanding. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, 
Paul tells Timothy, think over what I said. And Paul just gave him a metaphor or a parable. Okay? Think over what I said. So engage your brain. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so, while we are to engage our brains, the fact that we understand is not because of the superiority of our brains, but because God gives understanding. Christianity is not contrary to thinking, but neither is our thinking sufficient for Christianity. For instance, the officers and I, uh, we had our, our uh, combined meeting on Monday, and um, I, we, we started to watch a Dan Allender video on leadership. Um, and we, we didn't finish because it's an hour long. Um, and there's a second part to it, so guys, there's even more. Uh, but he talks about leadership, and he talks about the, the, the bind of leadership, and he mentions from Proverbs... Two Proverbs immediately back to back. Answer the fool according to his folly. And the next one goes, don't answer the fool according to his folly. Which one is it? You have to think a little bit to understand that, but ultimately it's God granting the understanding that helps you understand, that helps you know what's really going on. There's a way to answer a fool, and there's a way not to answer a fool. You want to answer a fool so that you relieve him of his foolishness, but there's a way to answer a fool that means you descend into his foolishness. And it takes wisdom to know the difference between the two. So it takes time, but ultimately it takes grace to understand the meaning of these parables so that you're able to benefit from these parables. Jesus uh, has already given them a basic knowledge of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom. And Jesus also takes time to explain these parables to these people. The primary mysteries uh, of the kingdom are Christ. That where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. That's one of the primary mysteries. That it's not some far-off place. It's not some geographic location. You know, you make sure you make the right turn in Albuquerque so that you get there, right? I'm, I'm directionally challenged. Okay? Uh, I almost had trouble getting to the uh, dinner reception last night because my brain had trouble orienting myself with the map. It wasn't making sense to me. Um, so... It's not about geography, this kingdom. This kingdom is about Jesus. But this kingdom, as we saw in Ephesians 3, as well as in Colossians 1, has to do with the influx of the Gentiles into this kingdom so that there's one people of God, both Jew and Gentile. That it's not Jew or Gentile, but it's Jew and Gentile. One kingdom. That's part of the mystery that Jesus is revealing to them. But not only that, as we see in this Colossians 1 passage, Jesus also shares his glory with his people. 
So that, so that the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is united to us, and we to him. And that's where the fullness of our salvation takes place. Uh, that's hard to understand, isn't it? That's why God gave us marriage as a metaphor to understand this two people, one flesh thing. To understand something about our relationship with Jesus and we get his glory. And when he returns, we're going to share in that glory. We're going to shine like the sun. It's hard for us to grasp. I mean, you, you can't look at the sun. It's, it's so bright, it's so glorious, that you can't fully behold the sun. You can only look and enjoy the sunlight that, that shines and helps you see everything else. But you can't look at the sun or bad things happen to your eyes. And we're going to shine like that. Because Jesus will make us shine. Because we are united with him. He's going to share his glory with us even though we don't deserve it. So that's a quick, quick, quick preview of these mysteries of the gospel, mysteries of the kingdom that um, Jesus reveals, <clears throat> which leads us to the, that's the answer of our second question. Jesus reveals gospel mysteries through parables. To some people they're concealed, to others they're revealed through the very same parables as God in his sovereignty works. Which leads me to a third question. And you're probably thinking this too. How do we know if we've experienced these gospel mysteries? How do I know if I'm one of the people that they're being concealed by the parables? Or if I'm someone through whom the, the mysteries are being revealed by the parables? That, does that not sound like a very important question? Okay. This question expresses an existential crisis. If understanding is a gift, I can't control it. Have I received the gift? And I think part of how this text answers that question is with that phrase, lest they should turn and be forgiven. While... uh, Jesus is using a different word than we normally find in the New Testament for repentance. He's using the concept that we find in the Old Testament, that of turning or returning. Okay? Lest those people do a U-turn and be forgiven. The person who receives the gospel mysteries, is the one who turns from the direction they're going, implying they're going in the wrong way. Let's take last night into consideration. Uh, This did not happen, but actually it did happen. Uh, When we were leaving the, the place, I wasn't driving, but I was navigating, and I navigated poorly. And my wife was so patient with me while I navigated poorly, trying to get to some street that went east-west that would bring us to the highway. Okay, We had to turn around because I had gotten us going the wrong way on St. Mary's. Okay, 
if, you've, if your life has turned around and you have received forgiveness, that is the key to whether or not the gospel mysteries have been revealed to you. They indicate you've gotten it. You've believed it. And now you're doing that gospel waltz that we talk about periodically. Okay. They don't earn forgiveness. Uh, they are, as I've talked about in other passages, uh, $6 billion debtors. Okay? I mean, they're, they're in so much debt that they cannot possibly pay it off, and yet their debt is forgiven, which means someone absorbs the debt. And that person who absorbs the debt, of course, is Jesus. He takes the loss on our debt. It's relieved from us. And this past week, I think we saw a great example of what forgiveness looks like when it comes to a $6 billion debtor. Uh, Because at the sentencing, Brant Jean expressed his forgiveness for Amber Geiger and gave her a hug in the courtroom. And for those of you who are not familiar with those two names, Amber is the former Dallas police officer who went into the wrong apartment thinking it was her own, saw a man there who refused from her perspective to respond to her uh, direction and shot him and killed him. So she wrongfully killed a man who had done nothing wrong, who was in his own home. And his brother, Brant, who had experienced incredible loss, had the audacity to forgive the woman who took his brother away. She had incurred an incredible debt in the wrongful death of his brother. There's nothing that's going to bring his brother back. But Brant wrapped her in an embrace, not forgiving the crime. He wasn't saying you shouldn't go to jail, but he's saying, I relieve you of your debt to me. Your sin is forgiven. We're $6 billion debtors like Amber Geiger, whether or not we've killed anybody. And Jesus comes to us and says, I can forgive that. I've paid the price for that. And we should be overwhelmed with the reality that he forgives $6 billion debtors like us. So realizing that we're going in the wrong direction, we turn around and we ask forgiveness. Not the forgiveness of a spouse who is frustrated perhaps because I've led them down the wrong road again, but really the forgiveness of one whom we've rebelled against every day of our lives. Now, let's get back to that reality of the kingdom for a few moments. I've mentioned Romans 14 before, and we'll bring it up again. 
Paul declares that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Okay, that fits the context in which he says this, but I want to focus on this next part. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. By this faith that hears these promises, the people who are in the kingdom seek righteousness, seek peace, seek joy in the Holy Spirit. They have a new orientation for life. They're not seeking the things they used to seek, but now we're seeking new things. And so this prompts, in a sense, a series of questions that, uh, that we have to answer as we consider this thing. Are we, as people who have heard about forgiveness, who have heard about pardon, are we now having the Holy Spirit produce in us righteousness? And that's, I want to, that in the Holy Spirit is essential to this. This is not try harder, try differently. This is... Is the Holy Spirit producing righteousness in you? Do you have a new desire to treat people the right way? Do you have a new desire to give them their due in your life? Or are you still all about you? Is the Holy Spirit producing peace within you despite the realities of guilt and shame and affliction that you experience? Is there, beyond all of that, this this sense of that peace of God which transcends understanding that comes and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Do you know something of this peace that He offers freely? Is the Holy Spirit Producing joy in your heart despite the realities of sin and misery that all of the cable news networks want you to hear about 24-7. Is there joy because the Holy Spirit reminds you that you're a $6 billion debtor who's been forgiven? that you are going to share in the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. That you are part of a kingdom that knows no boundaries and is not limited by time. And a kingdom that is filled with righteousness, not injustice like the world we live in now, that is filled with peace, unlike the conflict of the world we live in now, does that fill you with joy? It should. Life in the kingdom is also life, by extension, in the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ. And all of this is a gift of grace. And so we should live in the hope that Paul talked about. The hope of glory. The anticipation of Jesus sharing His glory with us when He returns. When we'll shine like the sun. 
when your mind goes to that, you know that the mysteries have been revealed to you, not concealed from you. And so faith receives the gospel promises of repentance and pardon. So if we were kind of to take these three questions, and more importantly, those, these three answers, and try and wrap them up in one thing, we would say that Jesus grants understanding of gospel mysteries and promises that we experience, and I should have put, by faith and grace. That's kind of long, though. But that's really what it gets down to. Jesus grants understanding of the gospel mysteries and promises that we experience by grace through faith. There, even better. Something I should have done two and a half hours ago. God has his own timetable and it's not the same as mine. So, And so, as I mentioned, my, my attempt to um, not make a stink about predestination in this Bible study failed ultimately. Um, not just in that Bible study, but it, it reverberated. Um, thinking that, that sending them to their pastor was a good thing that would quell any sort of dissension, uh, you know, uh, that it was better than me trying to play the part of the smart seminary student, um, you know, and I got the answers for you all, you know, uh, was a miscalculation on my part. It really angered that pastor. In a sense, because it outed him as a Calvinist, when I don't think he was ready for that yet. <clears throat> but there were calls to the seminary president to complain vociferously about me. I don't know why people get so angry about me <laughs> sometimes, because this is not the only time people have been really angry with me um, when I thought I was doing a good thing. And I think, unfortunately, it clouded his perception of me for the rest of my time in that church. However, I think there's a larger point here that parables are still used by Jesus to both conceal and reveal the mysteries of the kingdom and the gospel. He conceals them from those who don't or won't believe. He reveals them to those he also gives the gift of faith. To know uh, if we've received this gift is whether or not we have turned and received pardon. So are, are you seeking righteousness, peace, and joy in the power of the Holy Spirit, or are you seeking them in the world and on your own? Therein lies the key to where you lie with regard to the parables, and therefore, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, Isaiah's mission, as we see here, is not unique. Jesus had the same mission. There was going to be some hardening and some softening through his message. And Paul talks about the same thing. And, you know, it's the same thing for us. Father, even in this sermon, there are possibly people who were hardened by what I said and people who are led to worship you by what I said. 
Father, we struggle with that because we want um, everyone to receive what we have. And I don't know what happened with this young man's, formerly young man's parents and siblings, but I know what has not yet happened with mine, and that's hard to grapple with at times. So help us to remember that ultimately it lies with you. And you know what you're doing, even if we can't understand what you're doing. But help us to come to you with our questions, with our concerns and misunderstandings. And the hope that like as Jesus explained these things to his disciples, he will explain them to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.